My friends, if I could ask you to turn in your Bibles, please, to uh, Matthew chapter 13. You'll find that on page uh, 1511, on your, uh, if you're using a pew Bible, 1511. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus has been by the uh, seaside, uh, getting in the abode. He's uh, teaching um, the folks, he's teaching them through parables. And he mentions the parable of the sower here in these opening verses. But if we break in at verse 10 uh, with the question that the disciples asked Jesus. So from verse 10, we'll read through to verse 17. So if you have Matthew 13, this is the word of the living God. Matthew 13, verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him. Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and shall not understand and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. And their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly or truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Amen. So reads uh, God's uh, holy word. As now we turn in the uh, Old Testament to the book of Isaiah. The ninth chapter of Isaiah. You'll see that it's page number uh, 1069 in your pew Bible. 1069. Isaiah Nine, we'll read from verse 1 to verse 7. So again, this is the word of the living God, authoritative, inerrant, fallible. As always, it is God's word to, to us. Verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed when at first, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Sebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest. 
as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel for fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end, Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the seal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Amen. Beloved congregation, the Bible, as you know, is a book about Jesus. In the study of the Bible, if we take our eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ very quickly, we lose our way. In every part of the Bible, we will find him in whom our hearts delight. In every part of the Bible, we will find that it is either pointing backwards towards him or forwards to him. And as we know that our eyes, whether Old Testament or New Testament, those eyes uh, meet centrally at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, we find that he is predicted. In the New Testament, he is revealed. In the Old Testament, expectations and anticipations abound. In the New Testament, we discover that they are fulfilled. It's been well said that what is concealed in the Old Testament is then revealed in the New. Or what is contained in the Old is explained in the New. And so in our lead up to Christmas, we're turning our attention. Well, I'm turning your attention while I'm in the pulpit. uh, And certainly not for the first time to Isaiah 9 verse 6 specifically where we are introduced to this child who is born this son who is given and the names that are given to him in verse 6 provide an accurate description a designation of the nature of this child both as to his being and his character Now, interestingly enough, there's no anticipation in this that this child, when he grows, will actually be referred to by any one of these designations. In fact, there's nowhere in the New Testament that we discover that happening, that what he is... um, referred to here he, he's not specifically specifically addressed uh, by those titles in the new testament what the prophet is encapsulating seeking to summarize is the the wealth the grandeur the significance 
of the arrival, anticipated arrival of this child. And we see that he is introduced to us as the child who is born, the son who is given. And again, it's interesting also that the word for child is yeled, which is actually the word for a male child. So again, this is also interesting. For when it says, for to us a male child is born, to us a son is given. Well, isn't every male child a son? So clearly the reference to son has a significant reference, is a very significant reference. His birth speaks of his human parentage. And the fact that he is given speaks of his divine origin. Now notice Isaiah the prophet includes himself with the company of those who are the recipients of the blessing that the son's birth will bring. That is the significance of it saying, for to us a child is born. To us. Now you don't actually think of children being born to corporate groups of people. When Israel was born, we didn't say Israel is born to us. We didn't say James is born to us. We didn't say Miriam is born to us. You don't say that. You don't say that a child is born to a group. You say that a child is born to his mother. Or a child is born to, uh, into his family. But this child, this child is no ordinary child. It is to us the child is born. It is to us the son is given. You fast forward to the New Testament, you find a similar thing when the angels come and announce the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ to the shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem. What do they say to them? Well, they sing out from heaven, don't they? For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. To you, what? To shepherds? The lowest of the low? Well, you wouldn't trust a shepherd as far as you would throw him. You know, that's, that, that's how they were feud. And yet, to you, to you shepherds, Yes, to you is born. This, you see, is no ordinary child. This child is the one upon whose shoulders rest the very governments of the universe. He is the one who comes to us. He is the one prophesied in Isaiah 7 verse 14, Emmanuel. God with us. 
And he is as we will see. He is the child who is for us. My beloved, if this child is for us, who can be against us? And last week we considered a wonderful counselor. The one who can answer all of our whys and all of our wherefores. And since, as we'll see, he is not only a wonderful counselor, but mighty God. We discover that he has the power to accomplish his plan. And of course, the mighty God to whom we are introduced here, he is actually found throughout the pages of the Bible. For example, in Psalm 45, verse 3, the mighty God is clothed with glory and majesty. And Psalm 50, verse 1, it is the mighty God who speaks with absolute authority. And here in Isaiah 9, verse 6, it is this mighty God who establishes his victory. Now, obviously, that doesn't tell us everything that we need to know about this mighty one. And as I say, the Bible is replete with uh, verses that, um, you know, tell us about this mighty one. But the verses quoted give us three points of reference concerning this mighty one. This mighty one who, who is enthroned in majesty and glory. Three points of reference. One, that speaks with absolute authority. This mighty one speaks with absolute authority. Two, he can call the nations and the earth to himself. And three, he is the one who established victory and reigns victoriously. And we have noticed that in verses four and five, he is the one who breaks the yoke and the rod of the oppressor. How is it that he is able to do this? Well, because on his shoulder rests all of the government of the universe. You see, only someone who is supreme, only someone who is authoritative and keenly and God can intervene in this way. Now, what we need to get a hold of this morning, if we're going to move properly from prophecy, or from any prophecy for that matter, into the New Testament, what we need to get a hold of is the notion of expectation and fulfillment. So, for example, the, the whole idea of um, authority and kingly rule and government being upon his shoulders... Many of you will hopefully be in your mind, fast forwarding, you know, to the end of Matthew's gospel. And there you will remember when Jesus sends out his disciples into uh, the whole world to proclaim this glorious gospel. And, you know, to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Remember how he precedes his command to them with a statement. All authority in heaven and on earth is given unto me, therefore. Because all, you know, authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Because of that, you go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. You see, the reason, the reason that Christians evangelize, do evangelize, and will evangelize, is because that this child is the mighty God, and there is no other. Because he is the authority. Because he is the only supreme counselor, and therefore, beloved, the only hope of salvation in its entirety. And for this world rests on this child. And when you think along these lines and you realize what Isaiah and the other prophets were doing. I wonder do you ever say to yourself, you know, how much of this did they actually get? How much of this did Isaiah actually get? I'm not sure that he really got much of it at all. And we know that because Peter writes in his first epistle. And Peter writes in chapter 1, verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied, Isaiah obviously being one of them, the prophets who prophesied searched the scriptures and inquired carefully, trying to find these things out. So, for example, you know, let's in our minds move forward to Isaiah chapter 53. And Isaiah takes up his pen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he writes, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Peter says that when Isaiah wrote something like that, Isaiah was searching the scriptures intently, taking the greatest care, trying to find out what the Spirit of Christ was doing in predicting, prophesying these things. What the prophets wrote, they wanted desperately to discover it's like they uh, stood on their tiptoes trying to figure it all out. But they never saw the fulfillment of it at all. Now we know that from the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in Matthew. We read Matthew 13 earlier because... That shows us the great distinguishing feature between those who had gone before and the disciples themselves. In Matthew 13, verses 16 and 17, Jesus, as we noted in that reading earlier, having quoted from Isaiah the prophet, um, Isaiah 6, isn't it, he quotes from, he then says to his disciples, Blessed are your eyes, 
For they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and hear what you hear, and they did not hear it, including Isaiah. In fact, of all four Gospels, it's Matthew's Gospel that serves as the best bridge between the predictions of the Old Testament and the fulfillment of the New. Expectation and fulfillment. And you find that the recurring, uh, recurrent phraseology in Matthew, you find it starts in Matthew one twenty two, where Matthew says, you know, all of this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. That is a recurring statement all the way through Matthew's gospel. When you read uh, your Bible, notice the places in Matthew where he says, the reason that I'm telling you this is because the prophet said it, and this fulfills it. So you see, what is contained in the old is revealed in the new. That is what is meant by that. This is why he is, you know, preaching the kingdom of God. Jesus is preaching the God, uh, the kingdom of God, in the land of Naphtali. Why? Because the prophet said this about it, and this is fulfilling it. This is why he was put on a cross. Why? Because the prophet said this is what would happen and now he's fulfilling it. And you see all the way through the link between expectation and fulfillment is given us in the bridge that is actually built by Matthew himself. And just as Isaiah 9 verse 6 gives these names to encapsulate the, the wonder of this child. So the New Testament, uh, in the New Testament we have four Gospels essentially uh, achieving the same thing Isaiah was writing about prospectively. You know, Isaiah is writing about that which is expected. Isaiah is writing about that which is soon to be. Isaiah is writing about that which is approaching, and he says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called this, 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 and this. You're reading it and you're saying, what is that all about? What on earth does this mean? And you fast forward through your Bible, you come to the Gospels, and you discover, Matthew says, you know, I'm going to write a gospel and make it clear that all of what is unfolding in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ is on account of what the prophet said. Mark says, I'm going to write a gospel and make it clear to everyone who reads it that Jesus Christ came as suffering servant as a ransom for the sins of many. Luke says, I'm going to write a gospel, and I want to make it clear. I'm going to make clear the absolute universality of this gospel. And in John's gospel, John, 
is establishing with absolute clarity the great evangelistic appeal of the mighty God. Just let's settle in John's Gospel. John, like the rest of the Gospel writers, wasn't writing a biography. He was writing a Gospel. He was putting the material together under the direction of the Holy Spirit in such a way so as to convince people that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the one who has prophesied. John says, I am writing, writing these things down. And what I've ex- uh, selected as a, as a preacher, uh, what I've selected uh, as a writer, he says, is going to provide evidence. It's going to pr- provide proof. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah of God, that he is the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, he takes the prophetic notion of this mighty God and this wonderful counselor. And he takes the life of Christ and he puts them together on the pages of his gospel to allow people like you and me to get something of a, of a handle on the nature of what it means for the one, uh, who, for the one to be mighty God, uh, what, that, what that means. He, he displays it for, for us in the pages of his gospel, evidence that would compel faith or belief and lead to life. And he establishes it right from the very beginning of the, of the gospel. That's why he begins the, the way he does. Not with the incarnation, but with the pre-incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those of us who know anything of our Bibles at all, we exult in the clarity and the conciseness and the profundity. Of the opening verses of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light It shone in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. We read that and don't we wonder, how on earth can he be both? How can it be that he is God and with God? Well, the glimpse of the plurality of the Godhead that is given to us in Isaiah 9, verse 6, is now teased out. And it's worked out in the, in, the, in the unfolding expansion of John's gospel. And he begins to unfold the story. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared him. 
Verse 34, John the Baptist says, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Nathaniel, in his uh, wonderful encounter with Jesus, such a priceless little piece of the New Testament. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked Jesus. Jesus answered in verses 48 and 49, you know, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Nathaniel. Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And so you see, right from the very beginning, we're not even out of John chapter 1. And right from the very beginning, John is establishing the credentials of this one. And then he turns to the miracles. You just turn over a page in the Gospel of John, and you come to the first of the miracles performed at Cana, at the wedding of Cana in Galilee, where Jesus, as we're told, turned the water into wine. Now he created wine. You don't make wine from water. He eliminated the water and he made wine. Created wine. It's not what you'd expect the creator to do. And all of these miracles or miraculous signs are presentations, the evidence, the proof concerning the deity of Jesus Christ. This, if you like, is John's way of saying. And this is what Isaiah meant when he when he wrote and said that this child, this son, is not only wonderful counselor, but mighty God. These miracles are like acted parables underscoring the claims of Jesus. By the means of these miraculous signs, the glory of God and Jesus is made clear. That's what John says in verse 11. After, you know, creating the, uh, the wine... He says, the beginning of these signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed him. He says, and this is how it was for his disciples. They stood there on that occasion and they went, wow. This is amazing. What is this? Who is this? Such wonder. Nathaniel is absolutely right. You are the king of Israel. You are the Lord of glory. We get it. Evidence, belief, life. And incidentally, this gives a lie, doesn't it, to the whole notion that Christians are people who have disengaged their minds. Or that we're some bunch of dopey people who have simply bought into mythology. You know, if you think what that John writes here is mythology, if you think that this is mythology, you, you don't know anything about mythology. Because if you read mythology, mythology doesn't read like this. This is somebody reporting what happened. And each of Recorded signs or miracles add to, if you like, color and texture and drama 
and depth and breadth to John's picture of this mighty God. You know, last week when we looked at the wonderful counselor, we noted that wonderful, wonderful was not an adjective, but actually in the Hebrew, it's in the, in the abstract. And I tried to explain that the notion of wonder in the context, in the framework of the Old Testament, a wonder was that which demanded God for its explanation. And so we turn to Psalm 78, where the psalmist reminds the people, or rather the psalmist chides the people for forgetting the wonders that God had done. And one of the wonders that the psalmist references in Psalm 78 is when God divided the the sea and made the water stand up like a wall causing the people in their day to say who can make water stand like a wall well only God can explain that wonder it's only God can do that and so you have to understand that the Jewish mind carries all of that wonder out of the Old Testament into the New Testament into the search for the Messiah. And here are these Jewish fishermen out on the Sea of Galilee. The Lord Jesus is asleep in the boat. They come and wake him and say, do you not care that we're all going to drown? And of course we know that he stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and the great storm becomes a great calm and they look at one another And they say, wow, what's the explanation for this wonder? That he speaks and the wind and the waves obey him. There's only one explanation for this wonder. This is God. God does this. And they knew that. Now when Jesus healed the sick, when he walked on water, he wasn't doing magic tricks. This wasn't the forerunner of David Blaine. Remember David Blaine? You know, he did all those illusionist things. This isn't the forerunner of uh, Paul Daniels. And for those of us who are older, Tommy Cooper. You know, this, uh, this isn't Jesus doing a trick, sleight of hand, when he heals the sick, walks on water. Oh, beloved, he was displaying his majesty. He was making it absolutely clear that the powers of nature were under his sovereign control and that he was the very agent of creation. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Therefore, it makes perfect sense that he who fashioned all of this, who established it by the word of his power, would be the one to reign and rule over it. So in doing these miracles, Jesus was demonstrating his divine nature, the deity of his person. And you go right through John's gospel and you consider each of the miracles that he evidences. 
And it all falls into line for you when you realize that there's no other explanation for these wonders other than that this man is God in the flesh. The feeding of the 5,000. What else would you expect from someone who stands on the stage of human history and he says, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will never grow hungry. Now that's the kind of sign that you would expect from someone who said, I'm the bread of life. One of the men who was healed from his blindness by the touch of the one who said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the kind of thing. I'm talking about, he says. When I said I'm the light of the world. You see, the physical elements, the natural elements, and the miracles are not the issue. These are signs, proofs, evidences. You know, many more signs, John says, I could have given you. You know, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain all that he did. But these signs that John gives us represent the evidence of the person of Jesus. He is mighty God. How else do you explain Jesus standing outside the grave of his friend Lazarus and calling for him to come out? Come on, nobody in their right mind stands at the grave and calls for the body that has been in there for four days, has already begun to decompose. Nobody in their right mind stands there and says to that body, come out. You know, we could go up to any graveyard, go up to the graveyard there, Christ Church, go in. And stand at any one of those graves and shout at the top of your voice, come out. You can read their wee name in their gravestone. You can call them by their name. Come out. How long will you be standing there shouting for that dead person to come out before they will come along and they will take you off to some psychiatrist? And this man stands at the grave of Lazarus and he calls for him to come out and he comes out because this is no ordinary person who stood at the grave of Lazarus. He was the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he die, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe it? Come on, do you believe it? And who is this one? He is the mighty God. He is the wonderful counselor. And the skeptic cannot sit set this aside so easily child in a manger infant of Mary outcast and stranger is the Lord of glory is he an outcast and stranger to you here here this morning or is he the Lord of glory you go right through John's gospel you come to John chapter 13 the beginning of the uh, upper room discourses you follow all the dramatic displays of Christ's majesty and Godhood, and John turns in chapter 13 to the greatest paradox of all. That this one who is mighty God, that this one who is majestic and powerful, wraps himself 
in a towel. And he gets down and he washes the feet of the disciples. This is our God, the servant king. And our closing hymn will capture all of those paradoxes that I'm feebly trying to put across to you this Lord's Day morning. Our closing hymn will capture the paradoxes that are at the very heart of this. Who is he that stands and weeps at the grave where Lazarus sleeps? How do you explain God weeping? How do you explain God crying? How do we explain God recalling from that which had been planned from all eternity? Who is he who prays in dark Gethsemane? It's the Lord. It's the Lord, a wondrous story. It's the Lord, the King of glory. You know, if you're looking for a religion that you can slip into your hip pocket, stay away from biblical Christianity. If you're looking for something that will allow you to be God and to mold God after a fashion of your own likeness and just take him out when it suits you and to fit into the uh, everyday aspects of your life, you know, if something else isn't happening, maybe we'll come to church. Or I'll come to a Bible study or a prayer meeting. You know, molding your God and your affection of your own liking. You know, if you want something like that, you stay away from the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're prepared to buy all of your intellect, all of your emotion, all of your hopes, all of your dreams... Before this one, this majestic one who is revealed to us in this wonderful book, then you will discover that he is indeed mighty God and he is able to save you and will save you. If you will but call upon him even where you are sitting. Now, do you hear what the preacher is saying? Maybe, maybe some of you have already dropped off. But do you hear over and above the voice of man, the spirit of God, convicting and convincing you of sin, of your need of this Savior? If so, then you call upon him. Acknowledge yourself to be a sinner. Repent of that sin and embrace him as your Savior. And he will come to you. And he will make you his child. He will bring you into his family. And afterwards, you come up to myself or John and say, when that preacher was preaching... I heard a voice above his voice. The Spirit of God convicted me. I prayed that, you would, that he would save me. And I want to be baptized next week. To show what has happened internally. I want to show it visibly to everybody in this congregation. You're going to do that. Or you're going to walk out of here as dead in your trespasses and sins as you did when you came in. Now, it's only God can do a work of grace in the heart. My brother and sisters here this morning are praying that God would open the hearts of those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. You call upon God in Christ, and he will save you.